Well, good morning. It's indeed a privilege to be back with you, to share God's Word with you. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. It, it probably doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out from the title where I plan to go this morning, Lord willing. I'm, I'm just really wanting to remind us of some things that I've been thinking about when it comes to the area of perspective or, or how we view things and especially how we view and focus uh, on God himself. It, it made me think of a little book that I like to take out every so often. It was a little book that was given to me by one of our kids in the church I pastored many years ago. It's called Children's Letters uh, to God. I, I love per suing and perusing kind of in, in respect what kids think about God. And this little guy by the name of, I think Charlie said, Dear God, I do not think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just want you to know, but I'm not just saying that because you are God. Yet you talk about a young, wise perspective coming from a child, and yet you shift a little bit to another perspective by a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. Coming from another point, he writes, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. And then if that's not enough, he adds these closing words. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And folks, you probably understand that the church worldwide has a lot of views and a lot of perspective on when it comes to who God is. But I like what he says because it's important. The church and her idea of God. So really, what does that really mean to us? Well, it means this. It's, you got to start at the beginning and you got to get it right. If you don't get right who God is, it doesn't make any difference where you go from that point because everything will be wrong. And I want to submit to you today how we view the person and the attributes and the glory of God is extremely paramount to getting life right. Here's what I'm proposing, my friends, in our time together, that a right perspective of God's glory is essential to right living. A right perspective of God's glory is essential to right living. We need to keep the glory of God ever before us, always in focus, everything we do, Everything we think about, everything that we say and every place that we go should center on the thought, as Tozer goes on to note, around the person of our holy, holy Lord and extol continually the greatness of his dignity and power. Because it's easy to lose our perspective with sin and busyness and in these days all the mayhem around us and everything that's going on. Folks, when you encounter the Almighty, the Sovereign Lord, the inevitable result is contemplation, adoration, and confrontation. Now, with that in mind, with your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 6, we're going vi to visit 
uh, what the prophet had to say in his uh, vision of God itself. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 and just have you follow along as we get started this morning. The Bible reminds us in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the, the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Amen. Father, we just thank you for the text this morning. We pray that you would move me aside, that we might hear from the Holy Spirit this morning, that we might truly, truly see and focus upon the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. It has been stated that in this vision, the major concern of the book is discernible. God's inescapable holiness and soul majesty, the glory he has decreed. That's why I've chosen the topic this morning, focusing on the glory of God. It's in verses 1 through 8 primarily that the prophet Isaiah came face to face with three things. God's majesty, God's holiness, and God's forgiveness. And we need to get a perspective on what Isaiah saw this morning. And so first, we need to get a perspective on the majesty of God in these first couple of verses. Understanding God's glory becomes more real and sobering when viewed through his sovereign power and greatness. God's prophet Isaiah saw something that very few get to experience. I'm sure that none of you have had the same experience that he has had. I certainly have not. But it would help us, I think, to back up a little bit and get a little perspective on who Isaiah was and the situation around him at the time. His name means salvation of Jehovah. It's not an unusual name uh, for the Israelites of that period, nor is it unusual for our day and period to have somebody named Isaiah. He was a humble man, evidently. He was bold. He was diligent. He revealed an uncompromising attitude of firmness as God's spokesman. It was the same prophet that told King Ahaz, is it too little for you to weary men that you worry my God also? I'm sure he said it pretty bold, pretty firm. Really? You're going you're gonna to weary mankind and now you've got the audacity to weary God himself? He prophesied during the reign of Uzziah as we're indicated here in verse 1. A king who started and seemed to live well before the Lord. There were six good kings of Judah. He was one of them. 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 34 notes, and he did right in the eyes of the Lord. I think it was 2 Chronicles that said he as his father had done before him. Uzziah became the king at 16 years old, and he reigned for 52 years. But his pride eventually led to his downfall, 
and he ended his life as a leper. There's a side note here that I think is interesting, and that is how many Christians start well, but they end poorly either in life or ministry and perhaps even both. And it is here, sometime around the death of the King Uzziah, that he had known and he had served, that he came face to face with the majesty of God. And his life and his message would not be the same. Why? Because the scripture says he saw the Lord Adonai sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the robe filled the temple. Now, while the word majesty is not used in this text, I think the implication is there because majesty means Sovereign power, authority, dignity. It's the master, the sovereign ruler, the supreme great one. It lends itself to that of imposing character. I don't know why, but I woke up this morning humming that song, Behold our God seated on the throne, come let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare, come let us adore him. It was A.W. Pink in his Attributes of God that wrote, and I quote, Such an one is to be revered, worshipped, and adored. He is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, peerless in his perfections. He sustains all, but is himself independent of all. You know what we call that, folks? Big theological word. We call that transcendence. When we speak or acknowledge God's transcendence, we're thinking about how far and above God is compared to mankind that he's independent from human beings. He's, he's distant by way of the quality of his being. We are not God, and God is not us, contrary to others' opinions. It takes God out of the category of the normal. Scripture says he holds it all together, but in some respects, removed from the world. He's outside the box of creation, while at the same time being involved with his creation and his creatures that he has made. He wants that intimate relationship or that imminent relationship. I don't know if you can do it, but try to wrap your minds around that one. That shows you the God seated upon the throne that Isaiah saw. I want you to note that the surpassing nature of God's greatness does not mean that he is so far removed and unattached and so independent from his creation to have nothing to do with us, that he has no care or concern or relationship with them. That's just not true. This same prophet later wrote in Isaiah 57, verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. But then he adds these words, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. But friends, we only start from the very beginning where Isaiah was, and that is that only God himself inhabits eternity. And this causes us to worship the greatness and the worthiness of an infinite God who leads us to do so in reverence and honor. That is the scene room that we have here in Isaiah chapter 6. Seeing God on the throne reminds us that he is above all things. I love Some of the songs of Michael W. Smith, he wrote one a while back that said, above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Uh, Above all 
kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. The worthiness of God. We read about it in Revelation 5. We see it here. And Isaiah saw it. The Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted above all things. Here we view the throne room of God's glory. People are often confronted with the royalty of the Queen of England as, as someone of imposing character or authority, someone in a human way, I guess, sovereign in that sense. You may even hear the term, your majesty, with an attitude of respect and submission. Should that not even be more so with the God of the universe, that we look to him as the imposing character of authority and supreme sovereign rule. Remember, a right perspective of God's glory is essential to right living. The prophet back in chapter 2, verse 10, announced the following words that show us the seriousness of what Isaiah saw. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. It was the apostle Peter in his second letter that wrote some interesting words, thinking back to his time that you're going to look at, I think, next week, the transfiguration of the Lord himself. And Peter explains, exclaims these words, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw God, Jesus, really glorified. We call it the glorified state. Herein lies the mystery, I think, of the Godhead. We just cannot fathom his reality outside our own. This is the one Isaiah saw high and lifted up. John 12, verse 41 tells us, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him, Jesus. This is the one Isaiah saw sitting on the throne. Listen, my friends, only kings and queens sit on thrones. Only judges sit on thrones, or the high benches, we would call it today. Only those in a position of power and authority sit on thrones. Revelation 20, verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge. The authority to judge. One pastor has noted, he is never in a situation, that is Christ, is never in a situation where his authority is not seen. This is the majestic one, the glorious one. Psalm 29 reminds us the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare and his temple cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as the king forever. I need to share a comment by Matthew Henry. I think it's right on the money. He says, and I quote, the sovereignty of the eternal monarch he sits upon a throne, a throne of glory before which we must worship, a throne of government under which we must be subject, a throne of grace to which we come boldly. This is the high and lifted up above all competition and contradiction. No one else can rise, raise themselves to this place that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Well, how does that relate to us as believers? Well, in numerous ways. When we focus on God's majesty, we recognize and depend on his rulership over the universe and that there's nothing out of his control. Isn't that good to know? Nothing escapes him. He's not sleeping. 
In Luke 4, verse 36, as an example, Jesus heals the demon-possessed man and says, and they were all amazed and said, what is this word for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Jesus had that authority because he's God. We also know that his power makes us strong in times of weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 says, uh, Paul, in quoting Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore I would boast in all more gladly with my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest in me. Not only in weak things physically and emotionally, because Paul says with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I also think it's imperative that we realize that his strength gives us ability to stand against the evil one. Remind yourself of that by reading Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about putting on the armor of God, but being strong in the Lord and in his might. His exalted position draws me to give praise. Psalm 148, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. My folks, Isaiah was confronted with the glory of God as identified in his majesty first. Second, I think we need to get a, a good perspective on the holiness of God. Again, look at verses 3 and 4 where we just kind of narrow it down to what the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now think about it this way. No matter where you go on this earth, we are faced with the reality of our own humanness as earthen vessels. This puts us all on the same level because not one of us can say we are perfectly holy. This, uh, this reminds us that the throne room of the king is where Isaiah had a fresh encounter of God. He saw God arrayed in all his holiness. He viewed the earth full of his glory. And there's probably no attribute that grips us more than God's holiness and glory. He is totally separate. He is pure. He is set apart. He is righteous. He is without any flaws, unlike us as cracked vessels of humanity. God is in control. He's ruler and master of the universe and all that he has created as we've just seen. Too often, he is reduced in the minds and the hearts of people. He's not seen as a holy God on a throne, but as my big buddy or the man upstairs. And you don't have to read far to realize God was working to confirm Isaiah's trust in a sovereign Lord to prepare him for an unwavering service to his nation. And it all started with his encounter with an awesome holy God. That's where it begins with all of us. Because the situation looked dim in Isaiah's time. The king was dead. The enemy was on the prowl. The nation was in jeopardy because of sin. Immorality, political corruption, a culture full of idolatry serving other gods, stubbornness. Uh, there was obstinance, deafness. There was blindness and rebellious people. I told my wife, almost reads like the newspaper today. But a message needed to be preached. A simple people needed confronting. A holy God needed a messenger. And so we have the scene of the creatures called seraphim announcing that familiar hymn, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That repetition of holy, holy, holy gives an idea of seriousness. Like, like a threefold word used in Ezekiel 21 where the Lord says he will make Jerusalem a rune, a rune, a rune. Probably indicating the severity and the seriousness of turning that city into a pile of mess. In the companion passions of the throne room, we find in Revelation 4, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within, and day and night, 
do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Set apart from the ordinary, the common. Set apart as the moral standard. We know this to be true, so it shouldn't surprise us that the world wants nothing to do with God because it shakes up their way of worldly standard living. As we're going to see, the closer we get to the Holy One, the more we realize our own innate humanness. A.W. Tozer rightly exclaims, We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising that concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. You see, the world can't grasp that even on a broad level, that, that concept of holiness. Listen, my friends, God's very nature and character is that of holiness, and he does not change to somehow bring himself up to that standard of holiness. What he says to you and I as humanists is that by his grace, he's allowed us to be part of his, his family, and then we can rise to the level of his holiness. How do we see that in a practical way? Well, I think through 1 Peter chapter 1, there's two verses there you ought to memorize. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's the standard. So the question is, what is the holy character, or what does a holy behavior look like? Well, boy, just read your Bible, and you'll figure it out. But let me give you three quick ones. Ephesians 1 says it's going to mean walking in a manner or a habit that is worthy of our calling as believers. We have been called to salvation, and so now we live in that salvation. Someone once said we're a child of the king, so act like it. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, it means living in such a way that's consistent with our heavenly citizenship. Our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven, Paul said there in Philippians 1. And so we're representatives and so we need to ask ourselves, as holy living beings, am I representing God in that way? Galatians chapter 5 says it means not carrying out the deeds of the flesh, but by walking by the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Colossians 1, it means exhibiting godly characteristics such as compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with another, forgiving each other, loving each other. Because remember, a right perspective of God's glory is essential to right living. Isaiah came to that point where he had the encounter with God, and, and the first thing he saw as God sitting up there in that high, lofty position was his majesty, but then, then he saw his holiness. So we must ask ourselves a question, are we viewing God in the same way that Isaiah viewed him? Are we living holy lives as Peter tells us to in, in, in all our behavior? I I know it may be pedantic, but so once in a while when I read sentences or verses out of the Bible, I pick out words, and Peter gives us one word here that I think the Holy Spirit wrote on purpose, and that's the word all. Everything, everything, everything about our behavior. And I don't know about you, but that cuts me up short sometimes. I have to remind myself, how am I doing? So Isaiah was confronted with God's holiness. Third, we have this perspective, and that is the forgiveness of God. Look at verses 5 through 8 again. There we, we read an encounter 
uh, with God that brought Isaiah to a conclusion in his, in his own heart. Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah understood his spiritual condition before God, something the Israelites struggled with. Like the culture of Isaiah's day, unfortunately, sin has become so prevalent, so public, and so accepted as a normal way of life that it's almost lost its sinfulness, if you know what I mean. Now, mankind cannot lose its sinfulness. It's just sinful to the core. But the world has become so used to it. My wife and I often talk about some of the things you hear on the TV and you want to just quickly change it or the things you see. And I often remind her, why should it surprise us that sinners act like sinners or that they're unholy in their behavior? We were that way too. That doesn't mean that we get, that mankind gets an excused absence slip. But it does mean that we often take, I think, it often takes something that's severe, something that's terrible to confront us into reality. What did it take for Isaiah to get to verse 5 and to admit openly he had to see something first? And it was, it was pretty severe. I, I, I imagine if we were there, we probably would have been shaken a little bit. That unworthiness that Isaiah saw in himself. It was Job that confessed, I have, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I retract and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. And you get toward the end of the book and, I, and Job finally figures it out. But he said, you know, I, yeah, I, I've heard about you, but now I've seen you. It's interesting that Isaiah said, for my eyes have seen. There's something about, I think, the spiritual heart to see the true God, and the true self. It's easy to bypass a short statement in verse 7 to get to that all-too-familiar question and that God asked, and, and the reply by Isaiah, you remember those words, here I, here I am, send me, in verse 8? Yeah, God, I'm, I'm ready to go. But we cannot bypass how he got to that statement. In the first place, the seraph touches the lips of Isaiah and announces, and your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. Isaiah stands before the king of the universe, and he's, he's guilty of sin, but he's pardoned. Love that. Sin is gone. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar of the tongs. And notice this, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and notice the statement, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Isaiah stands before the king of the universe. One commentator said, the live coal that encapsulates the idea of atonement, propitiation, satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation. Atonement has been made. God has been appeased. He has been forgiven. There's been a new relationship with Isaiah. 
as the prophet of God. The song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Some type of atonement has to be made for sin. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice of some kind was called for and it was covered through atonement. In the New Testament, the death of Jesus was atonement for sins, taking away any debt we could not pay. Broken and humble before God, Isaiah not only self-confesses, but on behalf of a nation acknowledges their waywardness of heart because of the holiness of the king that he faced in his glory. You see, the purifying work of God's cleansing and repentance for service is painful when we're honest. But it's desperately needed if we're going to be used in the ministry of the king. Because the, the remedy of grace comes at a cost. The remedy of grace comes at a cost. Take your Bibles, hold them there, there in Isaiah, but turn back with me, if you would, to Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see something that Paul wrote that I think is essential to understanding as we bring it to our lives in, in the New Testament and beyond. Colossians chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul writes about to these believers that he's giving great thanks for. In Colossians chapter 1, we read in, in verse 13, For he, that is God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible goes on to talk about that, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Paul wrote, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And we know that as we come to the foot of the cross, that's where we find God's saving grace and forgiveness of sins. No matter what we've done, no matter who we are, as Isaiah stood there before God, understanding his own nature and understanding what God is relating to him, reminds me of that little song that says, our sins, they are many, but oh, praise God, his mercy is more. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. It's interesting to me that whether we're a prophet or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a layman, we're all on the same, we're all the same at the foot of a cross, as my friend used to remind me over and over the Apostle Paul lists his human credentials in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, just one after the other, one after the other. But then he concludes, he considered himself the chief of all sinners, the least of all saints. Woe is me, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and yet touched by the angel, or the seraph, he says, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. The culture of Isaiah's time, much like our own, I think, today, 
was much more concerned with their wickedness than redemption, more encumbered with their selfishness than a holy way of living. The society that Isaiah lived in, the, the nation to whom he was associated, was, was totally blind, and, and they really thought they, were, thought they were something. But the Bible even reminds us in 1 John chapter 2 that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's the message we take. Isaiah would go to a culture whose hearts were dull, their ears heavy, their eyes blind, and a lack of understanding. An intelligence marked by self-seeking agenda where the light of the truth was extinguished, consciences were seared, violence, immorality, impurity, sin nature running rampant. 2 Timothy chapter 3, in full bloom. Are we not rowing upon the same turbulent waters in our culture today? This is where it's good to remember that a right perspective of God's glory is essential to right living. Folks, that's, that's the message of Isaiah. That, that's the hope. That's the truth. God forgives iniquity. God forgives sin. The servant's being prepared and, and ready to stand and proclaim with boldness the only hope for the world, the prevailing and dominant grace of God. He experiences that. Until we see God as he rightly is, we're not likely to see ourselves rightly. If we do not see ourselves rightly, we're not likely to see the plight of the world around us. And if we do not see the world rightly around us, we're not likely to be impressed with the need to pray or to be involved in the harvest. Nothing's more important than Isaiah's time with God. This is probably the the paramount to where he would go in, in the next number of chapters. But it started here, early on in his ministry. Other things would take their rightful place at the appropriate time for Isaiah. But first, he needed to focus on God's glory. He needed to have an encounter with the Almighty. Then he would recognize his own limitations. Then he would find his, his mandate for service. This man who understood that my Lips are unclean, understood his own nature of his own heart. It's very similar to what Jesus said when he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the man, it's what comes out of his heart. It's the heart that needs changed. It wasn't just Isaiah's lips. The lips went down through to the heart where the heart got changed and he understood. And I think when I look at that and I, I see all this is taking place, I I look and say, well, what does that mean to me? And I just personally, you can jump in here. I'll just tell you what it means to me, and you can join in. I think first it means I, I've just got to be still sometimes. I've just, I need to stop long enough to do what Psalm 46 says. Stop striving. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Boy, that one thing ought to bring you up out of your depression Bring joy upon your heart to know that I just need to kind of take a step back and wait upon him, knowing he's going to be exalted in all of the nations on the earth. If, if he's got that much power, that much glory, that much control, I just need to take a stop back and look. I think it also means that we need to be more passionate for God, more excited 
of God. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Does, does your soul thirst? Does it, do you have that passion for God? And you can't get a morning or a day away from, from talking to God or reading the scripture or sharing about God because you're just so passionate for him. Or as the old term is, you're sold out. Third, I think we need to gaze upon the throne in worship. Revelation 15, again, such a good book says, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And, and if we don't worship now, there's coming a day that Philippians says we, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. But we get to gaze as believers in worship at the throne room of God. It doesn't stop with Isaiah because we know even Revelation tells us we can worship. We need to stand in fear of the Lord. Isaiah 8.13 says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor and be holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Psalm 89 says, A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those around him. When there's no fear of God, man is prone to think he can get away with anything. He thinks there'll be no consequences, that there's nothing to keep him in check. And I think even for believers, sometimes we can presume upon God's grace. And that's why over and over, we need to be reminded of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. We men, we recognize that in our own lives. Folks, I want to submit to you today that how we view the person and attributes of and glory of God is extremely, extremely important to getting life right. Here's, here's what I've been trying to remind us of, friends. A right perspective of God's glory is essential to right living. We need to keep the glory of God in focus as ever before us. Everything we do, everything we think should center on the thoughts of his greatness, of his dignity, of his power, his glory. This is going to take consistently viewing the majesty of God, the holiness of God, and the forgiveness of God. May we never, ever lose our perspective. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give a short prayer by A.W. Tozer and then one of my own. Tozer says, O Lord, our Lord, there is none like thee in heaven above or in the earth beneath. Thine is the greatness and the dignity and the majesty. All that is in heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, O God. And thou art exalted as head above all. Amen. Father, we just thank you that that's a great reminder to us. Lord, may we see, as Isaiah saw, the majesty and the holiness and the forgiveness of God today. And Lord, as 1 Timothy 1.17 says, may our eyes be focused upon the one who is the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God who deserves honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless.